This episode of Live from CapTime's Idea Fest is sponsored by Exact Sciences. Learn more about Exact Sciences' mission to beat cancer through early detection at exactsciences.com. Hello, and welcome to Live from Cap Times Idea Fest. I'm Eric Lawrenson. Over the course of the coming weeks, we're going to be bringing you recordings from the second annual Cap Times Idea Fest, a two day event on the University of Wisconsin Madison campus full of smart conversations about politics, community, and culture. On today's episode, is it time to start paying college athletes? Over the past century, college athletics have become a deeply ingrained facet of American culture. They've also grown into a multi-billion dollar business, causing some activists, athletes, and others to raise the question of whether it's time students get a cut of that revenue. Three former student athletes grappled with that question at an Ideas Fest panel last weekend. The group included Sheridan Blandford, Inclusion and Engagement Coordinator with Wisconsin Athletics. And then you're looking at a lot of your high-performing, revenue-generating athletes are underrepresented, racial minorities, and then the folks that are leading the teams in the NCAA are predominantly white males. Peter Miller, the chair of the University of Wisconsin Athletic Board. When we talk about corruption in college sport generally, I think that there is so, so much good in it. I think that if any one of you went and spent a lot of time with any one of our teams, you would largely see so much good. And Zach Bohannon. Currently a project manager with the YMCA of Cedar Rapids, Iowa, formerly the captain of the 2014 Badgers men's basketball Final Four squad. In my, my ideal world, I would love to just blow up the entire system, literally turn back to an Ivy League model. <laughs> Jason Joyce, the news editor with the Cap Times, moderated the panel. I'll let him take things from here. Uh, my first question is to Zach, um, who uh, may have inadvertently uh, prompted this panel by um, w- uh, working on a project as an undergrad, uh, oddly enough, um, when he wrote uh, a paper or did a project uh, attempting to state the case that college athletes should indeed be paid. Um, can you just uh, briefly lay out that argument for us and, and uh, maybe even share some of the reaction you've gotten to it? I initially got recruited to play basketball and went out to the United States Air Force Academy. And I was a paid college athlete, per se, because I was an employee of the federal government. So um, all these arguments that are currently up for being under law or under um, lawsuits by to the NCA, it's kind of funny to see all these arguments that are just strawman article or strawman um, arguments because back when I was a student at Wisconsin, I transferred from the academy after my second year, I redshirted, and then my fourth year, I kind of started taking a holistic perspective into the NCA and seeing the big money that was involved in the, in the Big Ten in general, um, and specifically even here on campus. And um, long story short, I ended up just saying when we went out for a Thanksgiving trip my junior year to Las Vegas, um, of all places, I don't know why you host a basketball tournament in Las Vegas except to make money, um, quite frankly. And when I started thinking about that, I was a, uh, I had graduated a year early um, with my econ degree, and I was um, guest blogging for CBS College Sports. And after that trip, one of the writers got in touch with me. He's like, well, can you explain just some of the experiences? You've talked about these with me on the phone. I think it would be really good to do a perspective of what it's like being a true collegiate athlete. And Anyway, so I wrote this article, ended up submitting it. I had to get every single um, article um, censored by our administration um, because they didn't want me to say anything that I shouldn't be saying. And I just did an honest, introspective look, and I had two people, um, one who was our um, athletic communicator at the time who was in charge of all media requests. He told me, he called me immediately once I sent it to him and said, you can't publish this, Zach. This would um, ruin our school. And I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, this would, this is not what college athletics is supposed to be about. I'm like, this isn't about <laughs> anything our school is doing wrong. This is just the honest opinion of it. And anyways, I ended up not publishing it, but that was kind of a, um, a story that got out that I, w- I was a notorious um, 
athlete, outspoken athlete, athlete for our school that ended up ultimately getting Nigel Hayes involved in the current <coughs> lawsuit with the NCA um, that is still at trial that just, it's now in recess. Um, officially done, I guess, I guess they have closing arguments or something still down the road, but uh, um, so yeah, so that was kind of the article that um, Jason alluded to, and then obviously during our run to the Final Four, I was a very outspoken critic laughing at all the different things, like the Warner ladders that were um, there at our practices that were the official ladder of the NCA um, sponsor, and I was like, really, these types of sponsorships literally are getting made without athletes benefiting one, one second, so... So Sheridan, you competed at the Division Three level, which is uh, uh, scholarships are not even available to uh, Division Three uh, athletes. Um, but in your in your current job at Madison, you're dealing with athletes who are who are highly recruited, coming in um, with a, probably a lot of promises made to them, um, but also with a with a bunch of different expectations. Some folks, maybe from the non-revenue sports, expect to you know. Uh, get their education paid for, leave here with a degree, probably won't compete much in their sport beyond graduation, to people who actually intend on pursuing that sport at a high professional level. Can you tell me just a little bit about sort of navigating that separate set of expectations with the student athletes and, and how much of Zach's experience do you run into? Yeah, no, I think I, as he had hinted on, I bring a very unique perspective to this conversation. As I was a Division Three student athlete, and I've worked at Division One, worked back in Division Three at a conference office, so a smaller scale of what the Big Ten would be, and then again, now being at Wisconsin. So I, I feel very divided in this argument because of my own personal vested interests and the things that I experienced as a student athlete, as a Division Three athlete, and the resources and access and opportunity that I had had and or lack thereof. Um, but then also in my current role, I am charged with working with, as you mentioned, some of the most high performing, um, some underrepresented student athletes and how that goes to be a part of the conversation. So I think that there's a lot of different arguments when you look at specifically my role and what I can bring to the table through this conversation and you're looking at um, some of the racial division within this conversation and how um, a lot of your high-performing revenue-generating athletes are underrepresented, racial minorities, and then the folks that are leading the teams in form of a coach or an athletic administration and or those um, people that are overseeing the Big Ten and the NCAA are predominantly white males. So you're looking at that division. But then another side of the argument is the gender argument and how women are, you know, are going to be in your non-revenue generating sports and how then the pay-for-play conversation could come into play to say that women almost never are going to have that same exposure and or opportunity to bring that um, bring that exposure to to equate to making money through the through the paid for play argument, um, and then again going back to that revenue versus non revenue generating conversation. I mean, it's it's a tough one. I don't know if I have one specific answer, but can speak to a little bit about some of the things that I had mentioned. If we have further questions about it. Peter, you've looked at this issue uh, not just in your role on the athletic board but and, and as an athlete yourself, um, but through the lens of, of someone studying it. Can you, can you help us with just, just a little bit of uh, an outline of sort of where the arguments are coming in right now on how athletes are pursuing getting paid? I know not all of them are saying, hey, I should be, I should be signing a contract and being paid like a professional athlete. There's a, an array of arguments being made right now. I, I guess I could talk about two of them. Um, so one is a case being heard right now. It's, it's called the Alston case. It's in the Ninth, ninth Circuit in California. And the, the, the um, case is whether it is lawful for, for colleges to restrict earnings for, for student athletes. So it, it's called the pay-for-play case. But the, the case is really about is it lawful to restrict what you can pay athletes. That's been in the works for a number of years. Um, and it likely, wh whichever way it goes, and it's likely most people th think to go the way of the plaintiffs in this round within the next couple of months, which means that those restrictions would be lifted, um, or, or it, would, it would say that it's illegal for the NCAA to restrict. It's, most people are anticipating that Judge Wilkin will say it is illegal, but that will then go to an appeals court and maybe even to the Supreme Court. It could play out for another 18 months. Um, that's one case, it's a, it will have profound impact. It'll have, we'll feel it here and we'll feel it um, in, throughout the NCAA, we'll feel it in the Big Ten conference level. The other one which a lot of people heard about um, 
a couple of years ago was called the O'Bannon case. Um, that's Ed O'Bannon was a um, former basketball player for UCLA, someone I grew up playing basketball with. I have a picture in my basement of me playing against Ed O'Bannon, so it's funny to come full circle now to be um, talking about him in that way. But that, that was one about this issue called name, image, and likeness, and whether, so he was playing, the story is he was, his friends were playing the video game with, of him on the video screen, and they said, well, are, how much are you getting for this? And he said nothing, and you know, that, that's, the, that's the narrative that goes with it, but it's whether, as a student, you can kind of make money off of, off of your name. Um, and, and right now, you cannot. So I remember signing my scholarship form in college and signed over my rights you know, as a student that I couldn't, not that anyone wanted to make money off of my name, but that, you, that I couldn't do it. So that's, that's the other big um, kind of um, area of pay for play that people talk about right now. So um, to put a couple of those um, examples into play, uh, Jonathan Taylor, very famous, accomplished running back, uh, Heisman, you know, potential. Uh, they sell a lot of his jersey, number 23. He doesn't get any of that money. And Jonathan Taylor couldn't um, uh, do a commercial for Zimbrick uh, or, you know, whatever. Paul Chris does a commercial for some auto dealership locally, but an athlete couldn't do a similar commercial. And those are, those are not specific sort of pay-for-play kinds of arrangements. Those are literally just a, a, an athlete being able to profit from their fame, really, their personality. We actually have internally an athletic group, student-athlete-run group, and it's called SESO. It stands for Student Athletes Equally Supporting Others. And they get together monthly, and they have an executive board of student-athletes, and they create a topic that they want to talk about. Usually it, re it falls under the diversity inclusion umbrella. And actually in the spring, we had a conversation about pay-for-play. So there is a lot of conversation that happens with athletes, and it's very... When we came into that room, we said, okay, you know, if you, you don't have to necessarily choose, but for the sake of having a debate, choose, choose kind of a side. So we had them divide, and it was just, it was fascinating to hear the different arguments. And you did see on the side that we're kind of voting for this pay-for-play concept, most likely you're revenue-generating football, basketball, a few hockeys were in there, and then your non-revenue generating were on the other side. And just to hear the, hear the debate back and forth, it was fascinating. Again, I was sitting in the middle, like, I'm glad I don't have to <laughs> decide this, but um, yes, there's definitely conversation. And I think, as I mentioned, your revenue generating are a lot more passionate about finding ways to be paid rather than your non-revenue generating. Mm -hmm. Zach, did you find that to be true? I was asked to be on the plaintiff side for both the O'Bannon and the Jeffrey Kessler antitrust case, um, which was ultimately what led us to get Nigel Hayes on the case as one of the lead plaintiffs as well, um, more so because of how much dialogue that our locker room had. And um, let's just take a step back as Professor Miller talked about the name, image, and likeness part of it is how crazy it is that a own athlete at a university cannot profit off their own name, image, and likeness when a coach or an administrator or anyone else can. And that was the biggest thing that they, Ed O'Bannon literally saw his son playing himself in a video game. And one of his buddies, one of O'Bannon's old buddies said, isn't that crazy that they're making all this money off of you? And O'Bannon's not actually, get, he never got a dime from the case. He knew that going into it, the political ramifications that he was gonna be doing and undertaking by joining the lawsuit, he was just doing what he thought was right and what was a civil rights case of our time. And, we saw in 2011 um, at the Atlantic, Taylor Branch, who's a noted civil rights historian, who's won a um, um, Pulitzer Prize on his biographies of Martin Luther King Jr. during the 1960s civil rights era. And he wrote a fascinating piece, uh, I think it was a 27-page piece on the shame of college athletics, or shame of college sports, I believe it's called. And he talked about how the current co college sports landscape has the whiff of the plantation. And that was actually not the first time that was that reference was made. The NCA, the very first executive director of the NCA in the 1950s was a guy named Walter Byers, who actually was a University of Iowa student, never officially graduated, but he became the executive director of the NCA, and he was the one who came up with the sham term of student athlete in the 1950s after World War II to literally not pay workers' compensation claims for all the former athletes who were either injured or even killed at the time, how the NCAA was even founded, taking him a step further back, sorry, going into the history lesson here. Um, back in 1905, Theodore Roosevelt, 
who, as most of you know, was the president. He was a noted um, um, sporting fan, and he loved sports so much, he got into college sports, and he was um, really upset and disappointed with how many deaths were taking place in the early 1900s on the football field. He said every single time that a football game took place, um, athlete was either carted off in a major injury or literally died on the field. And to this day, we're still seeing deaths in college football. And um, I had a friend of mine who wrote his thesis, his undergrad thesis on the um, parallels of modern day football to the former Roman Empire and the gladiators and how literally we have these fans go and watch college football players literally fight to death. Um, now so, we're only seeing it decades down the road and what we're seeing in concussions and all the other uh, mental injuries that are leading to depression and suicide and whatnot. But anyways, the NCAA was formed in 1910 after five years after President Roosevelt recommended a, the college presidents do something or it was gonna be under national regulation and that it was gonna be um, literally the Congress was going to take care of it. And so the schools collectively came together and the NCAA was formed at that time. And it was really a political body just so that they could continue to do and go further on with what was started with college sports as um, until the 1950s and 60s when big money started to take place in the, in the system. And that's when the money revenue drivers started to take place and student athlete term became um, existed and now we've just seen a um, continued revolution in the big money TV contracts that have continued to exploit the student athletes and the unpaid labor that um, are really making all the money to begin with, which they're not even able to, as going back to the original question and the long-winded answer I just gave, that they're not able to make any money on their own name, image, and likeness, let alone being able to be compensated for their talents in the athletic field that other students, everyone keeps saying, well, they get a free education. No, there's a key difference. They're getting a free diploma. The majority of the people are walking away, especially in college football and college basketball, as we're seeing at the University of North Carolina and all the sham paper classes and all the different clustering that is being taken place by students getting into um, classes that are literally just filled with other athletes, not even other students on campus. And they're walking away with a diploma that a lot of the time is really as valuable as a degree for, from Trump University, I guess you can say. <laughs> that, that was excellent. Um, I, yeah, I, I, I was going to present that sort of because, because that's the counter argument, right? I mean, um, one of the issues that we've seen addressed in many of the panels just this weekend is the student debt crisis. So, you know, there are a lot of students who would say, oh, gee, that's, that's rough. I, I'd really, you know, hate to have to leave here with a degree and like zero student debt and, by the way, get paid along the way, um, you know, have sweet Under Armour garments thrown at me, you know, um, wave to my thousands of fans as I leave the football field every Saturday. You know, life as a student athlete, boy, that's really rough. Um, Peter, maybe you can speak to this. Um, how do we, you know, how do we balance those two arguments? Well, I, I guess I would I would refer to a couple of things Zach said, and I, I I guess I agree with some of them, but I disagree with some of them as well. So I think first of all that there are there are lots of cases that we've read about recently of of kids who have been taken advantage of, of kids who have um, who are getting really serious injuries, who are not graduating, whose coaches are taking advantage of them. They're viewed just for their athletic talent. Um, and that's bad, there's corruption. There is undoubtedly corruption in college athletics. I think when we go kind of and characterize the entire enterprise as, you know, um, you know not being real degrees or um, not, they're not being an authentic educational part of it, it's not, it's not true. I mean, I think, you know, if, if you think about our, our place here, we have, you know, usually between 700 and 900 student athletes. Um, you know, if, if you go this week on, on Friday, there's a luncheon for all the athletes and you'll get up and hear all the seniors stand up and say what majors they're in. And they're not, if you come here, these majors you'll hear are not, it's not, um, they're not majoring in football. They're majoring in, in economics and in engineering and a lot, just like, like you, you know, like you were, really, really good students who are, who are getting authentic educational experience. So I, I think that is something we need to acknowledge. I, I, I also think something we should acknowledge is that, um, 
it's almost a discussion, the public discussion is almost one of men's basketball and football. And when we talk about college athletics being paid, we're, we're talking about two, two things. We're talking about men's basketball and football. And so when we, when we, if we take it down to that, it's a different thing than talking about college athletics writ large. There are a lot of, a lot of students who have completely different experiences who are not in those sports. Um, I also think this idea of, um, when we talk about students of, students of color in particular, their experience as athletes. So one of the big arguments is that, you know, we have a lot of the, what you'd call the students, the most noteworthy student athletes, whether in, again, in men's basketball or football, are a higher proportion of them are students of color than they, we see in the other sports. Um, and a higher proportion of those students, if you break it down, may have not as good of education outcomes as students in the other sports. But this isn't just an athletics issue. This is a, a societal issue, right? So if you, if you look at, if you look at the, the educational opportunities and outcomes of students of color in athletics and beyond, there's great disproportionality across the board. And in reality, when you look at, if, if, you, if you wanna make the argument of opportunity through athletics, the proportion of students of color in athletics who are, who are getting degrees is a lot higher than those who are not in athletics. So I mean that that's part of the story. I, I agree with a lot of I agree with a lot of what you're saying, but I also think if, if we go too far, and the, the Taylor Branch article is a compelling one in a lot of ways, but I don't know that a lot of this acknowledges um, kind of the, the full spectrum. I'll ask, let me say one more thing. So I have I have a you know an article here that this is from 20, 22 years ago. This is an article in the Chicago Tribune. Um, and it was written by Teddy Greenstein, who's still a writer for the Tribune, and he came and and he followed me for a week. And during that week, I was the poor college student who didn't have any money. I have a quote in here that said, um, last, this is a quote from me 22 years ago. Last year for certain months, I had, I had no money literally, said Miller, Notre Dame's starting shooting guard. I couldn't do anything. And it's a story about how hard I had it as a college student and how bad it was. And at that time, I was saying all these things we we're saying. Now, 22 years later, as I look back on it, I, I, I'm thinking about how hard it was. It really was hard. But I'm also thinking about, and this is something I think it's undersold. I think this gets undersold in part of the narrative. Was that those four years for me were the most difficult years I had, but they were also um, four years that changed my life in a, in a profound way that still every week, every week for the last 20 years, this has been something that I'm talking to people about. They found out that I did that, and it's a, it's, it's a great kind of accomplishment that I had. So that, sometimes I think when we're in it, we don't always see the, the, the long-term impact that something can have on your life. I think just looking at the tuition numbers, so maybe I had $100,000 worth of tuition 22 years ago, um, and that's the number we see. We see tuition equated with what the opportunity is. It's a lot more than that. You know, we had, we had over, the, over the last 10 years in the U.S., I think we have 55 million new jobs in the U.S. economy, 70% of those jobs require a college degree. Um, so getting a degree is, it's a real deal. Like it leads to, to, to job opportunities that are not, you know, the economy has changed as well. So I would say, I would say that there's, there's a lot to be done. There's a lot of reform to be done. There's a, there's a very strong argument, especially in the name image like this area, but that sometimes we undersell exactly what the student is getting during their experience. I think it's significant when it's done right. And I think to go, on top of that is to talk about the resources that the student athletes have access to to attain that degree. Um, again, there is an argument of them just receiving a diploma, and those are, <clears throat> that does happen, but as it's grown, and I'm sure from your experience, be age yourself a little bit there, can I? <laughs> uh, but as it's grown and the amount of money that has been poured into specifically these big power five institutions and the resources that these student athletes have access to, I was sitting in a meeting yesterday and our Department of Inclusion and Engagement is considered like a support service force for our athletic department. And there are nine support services that our student athletes have access to. So, so from inclusion engagement to performance nutrition to career and leadership to academic support to um, you know, sports training, like the whole nine, they have access to a lot of things to make themselves successful individuals. And again, I'm not saying that all of them utilize them, but, um, and to touch a little bit on my division three experience, those resources are absolutely non-existent. And I'm speaking specifically to the sports medicine, the access that they have to get back to their, to get back to their sport. In college, I had four knee surgeries on one of my knees. I had to drive 45 minutes every week to do physical therapy. And I did not have that, the same resources that, you know, you walk 
walk down into the University of Wisconsin athletic department, the access and the resources and the massage therapists and all those different things. Again, not saying that those are, that is in its totality the main thing to pay attention to, but also to say that they do have resources that if they capitalize on them in its totality, they can truly get some get some, something really great out of that entire educational experience past just getting that diploma. Um, the, the sort of the treating being a student athlete like a job I think is really interesting because in, in many ways, um, you know, it is, it is sort of a job. Zach, um, I'm wondering if you could tell us uh, during the basketball season what a typical day looks like for a Division I college basketball player. What, what is that schedule? How does that like literally when are you waking up, when are you going to bed, what's going on in between? From a week standpoint, it's 40 to 50 hours a week minimum for a end season. And the problem with the NCAA and college administrators or whatever in regards to that is that they try to limit you, but the problem with that is that you have the schools are literally hiring compliance directors and the compliance directors are paid by the school and yet they're supposed to regulate the student athletes who are getting the short end of the stick on it all. So I say that because the compliance directors give the compliance sheet to the coaches to say, hey, go schedule, or go put down each day that you're, like for a typical day, how many hours did your student athletes, I hate using the term student athletes, I like to say as Nigel Hayes says, athletic students, which is what we were. Um, as athletic students, how many hours did they work? Or how many hours did they do of practice or film or whatever that was required per day. And so you're supposed to put the number of hours down and then the players are supposed to sign off on it. But usually those weeks are, are each week is done a week or two in the past. So you're not even, you don't even know what the week, because you're so on a day-to-day -day standpoint, you're so busy as you can attest to with some of the um, other athletes that you're seeing. You're waking up, like for me, for our basketball team, we lift at 7 a.m. So that meant alarm clock, I tried to wait up, wake up as, last, as long as possible. So I was up at 6.40, maybe 6.45, to try to get on my moped and go straight to the Kohl Center to get a lift in, 7 to 8.15, 8.30, and we're back in the locker room. Just over an hour lift. I think technically they always said it was under an hour, um, but it was always hour 15, hour and 20 minutes um, for sure. We would go back. That's when you're supposed to get your um, shower, get it all off to class. You have class usually 9 usually nine to noon, depending on your schedule. Each, the men's women and men's basketball and women's basketball flip the Cole Center schedule. So um, one part of the season on one semester, you're practicing, you have the 12 to three time slot. The other one, you have three to six time slot. So that gives the availability for the students. If a class is offered from 12 to three at one time, they can take it in that time slot in the other semester. In theory, it makes a lot of sense, but in actuality, it's one of those things that it's put into place to make sure that the student knows or the athlete knows by the coaches that your main priority here is to do that sport, is to play basketball, to play football, whatever sport it is, and you're supposed to be there at that time. And if you have a class, like I know um, we have another former basketball player here in the audience that you're only allowed to miss class for, or you're only allowed to miss practice for a class if you were, if that class was required for you to graduate. So if you wanted to go expand your horizons and take another class that you might have find intellectually curious about, you couldn't take it if it conflicted with class. It had to be outside of your, outside of your class schedule or outside of your practice schedule. So you couldn't take an early morning class if it was an 8 to 10 or whatever because of morning lift and you couldn't take a class during that 12 to 3 or 3 to 6 time frame. You had to wait another year or had to wait a semester if it was even being offered then. Um, and the biggest change, I guess, from the day-to-day -day grind is that your day-to-day -day encompasses on what major you can ultimately select because of how much you have to do on those day-to-day. -day. You used to see decades ago where a lot of the top, top standout students were able to be pre-med majors or engineering majors or a rigorous science major. Now they're getting into the weaker majors that aren't as time sensitive or time critical. And one of my good friends, who I've helped out with on the Northwestern unionization case, the private unionization that went against the National Labor Relations Board that ultimately found them that they were um, employees, that they could unionize. It ended up getting um, repealed ultimately in the end. But Kane Coulter was the quarterback at Northwestern. He was on the path to be a pre-med major. He was a quarterback, recruited quarterback. 
He went to Northwestern to play football and be a pre-med major. He went down the first year at pre-med. The coaches told him he had to decide between staying pre-med route or continuing on to reach his full potential on the football field. Ultimately, at the time, when your eligibility is only five years and you're told your entire life you're a standout college football or college basketball player, you're going to choose and listen to that coach because they're the ones who got you to that school and whatnot. And that's the one of his biggest regrets, he says, is that he didn't take advantage of those opportunities because he couldn't take advantage because of the football and the day-to-day -day schedule that he had to ultimately be able to use. The last point I want to make on our final uh, run to the Final Four, which is one of the biggest problems that I see with the NCAA is all these different game times. Football is a separate issue, but for college basketball, you're playing and traveling during the school week, missing two to three days of school every other week, traveling to these conference games or traveling cross country for these tournaments, and you're getting not for, you're ultimately getting forced to play on school nights where you're missing classes, which if your prior, priority is to be a student first, an athlete second, you shouldn't have to miss class that you're, you shouldn't be told to miss class. During our run to the final four, during the three weeks of our first round turn, our first weekend tournament, uh, the second weekend of the NCAA tournament, and then ultimately the final four weekend, we missed 13 of 16 school days. 13 of 16, I was only in class at the time, I was already graduated with my undergrad in economics, I had already graduated with my master's in political communications, I was a first year MBA student with my going for uh, MBA in finance, and I missed 13 of 16 school days during that run, and I couldn't do anything about it. There was nothing that I could do because those games were scheduled during the school week. So on a day-to-day, -day, it's really the holistic perspective of what the week and the month ultimately looks like and how many hours you're working per se, at your job, which you're not able to get compensated for, so you're really unpaid, unpaid exploited labor. Yeah, Peter, can you talk about that a little bit? I know, especially in, in terms of college basketball, I mean, when I was in school here 30 years ago, you didn't see these goofy game times that are scheduled around the Big Ten Network or, or other national television commitments. Is there a tension there? How are these decisions made, and is there any pushback from the university? Yeah. This is, uh, actually, this is an interesting one. This is unique to men's basketball, especially. You know, if, if you think about football, in some ways, football is an environment where uh, those, they, they miss very little class, if any. Those trips were like, like our team, uh, when we make a road trip, they'll leave on a Friday afternoon, be back Saturday night. So there's very little class missed for football. Um, it's actually, when I say it's unique, to, when it's unique to men's basketball, I mean of, the, of those two. The, the sports that miss the most for us are actually interesting. At, at Wisconsin, like uh, softball, women's softball, they miss so much class. Every, every year we have to uh, um, approve their schedules. Yep. And so if you play softball in Wisconsin, it's not, you know, in, in March in Wisconsin, there's not a lot of softball being played. Our golfers miss a lot. They're traveling south. They're traveling west to go play. So they're missing a lot of class. Um, we have to approve those schedules every year. So that that is undoubtedly a big issue. With, with men's basketball, the issue is the TV schedules pushing, pushing things late. And women's, um, and, and, women's and women's. Men's, um, yep, men's and women's basketball. So um, that's, I agree, that's a big issue. I think that as we see more and more money with the, with the contracts, with the TV contracts, with the media deals, that will continue to be an issue that, that needs to be grappled with. I'll say a couple of things though, coming back to kind of the the, the references to kind of like plantation reference or to the even, there's another book by Joe Nocera called The uh, Indentured, and it compares being a college athlete to indentured servitude. You know, I, you know, some of those things I think we need to kind of step back as well and look at the big picture and say, you know, um, if those references make sense, we can look at the totality of things. Um, certainly, again, there is corruption. There are kids who are taken advantage of, and that's not good. Um, but it, also, if you look at the whole kind of the whole picture, we have a 15.3 billion dollar youth sports industry in the U.S. right now. So I, I have four young kids. We have Q is back here. Quinn Smith played basketball here. Wave your hand, Q. And Q and I, um, we we coached over the last few years. We've coached a group of kids in basketball. We see parents, hundreds, thousands of parents, clamoring, doing everything they can to get their kids a college scholarship. Most of them have no chance. But the parents think they do. Every parent thinks their kid is a Division I. But none of them are, almost any of them. So if you go to any community in the U.S., you will see the same thing. You'll see the same in Iowa. You'll see, you'll see people clamoring, lining up at the gates to get a college scholarship. 
Now, why are they, why are they going to all, why are parents, why am I driving my kids to Milwaukee every weekend to play in a game when, you know, and it's, a lot of us are doing that. I'm, I'm not doing it for the, I, don't, I know my kids aren't playing Division One, <laughs> But, um, so if it's such, you know, sometimes I think that if, if, if that reference is true, that the supply side is still very strong. A lot of people are lining up to get into it. That's, that's. I would say that's part, uh, something that needs to be considered. Another thing I would say with regard to like time, time demands and that kind of stuff, I agree that time demands, it's a very significant, it always has been, it probably always will be. We had a recently, this last four or five months, there was a little story about it in the paper yesterday, we did a review of all of our athletic programs, the department here at Wisconsin, to make sure to look at safety issues of students. And we, we surveyed, we sent a survey out to every student athlete we sent a survey out to everyone who works in the athletic department staff to try to learn about a lot of things. One of the, and when we looked at the numbers of like positive results the students had, there was one issue, there was one area where some students were, had some complaint and it was with regard to their relationship with um, the team trainers and doctors. And we were very concerned about that because given what we've read about at, at some other schools, horrible things happening with that. We wanted to do a lot of follow-up. And we followed up on it. Some, the biggest qualm that students had was not, at, at least the ones that we spoke with, was that they were not, they were, they were locking the gym and they were not allowing them, they were not allowing them to play when they had an injury, some of them, some of them. So some, so if you, so if like, for example, when I was playing and I had an injury, basketball was the thing I loved the most. And I, I wanted to play more basketball and people were not allowing me to do it. So it goes, it, so what I'm saying is like, it goes kind of, sometimes the role of, of um, limiting hours is viewed differently by the student than it is by, by others. I wanted to play basketball more than I wanted to go to class. And, and someone had to tell me not, not to. There are abuses of the system. There are lots of abuses where, where kids are being made to miss class, but it goes both ways. There are, there are a lot of kids whose the thing they love most is the game, and we need to limit them in that regard. Go ahead, Zach. Going back to your question, or going back to your point on the time demands, I think it's almost ironic. Well, it really is. One. Um, I think it's ironic that the whole time demands, that's been one of the biggest issues. And I know, obviously, you being the chair of the UW athletic, um, or athletic chair, that you see it from a professor's standpoint that the time demands are an issue. And the problem with that is that it has been known that that's an issue but it hasn't been going in the reverse direction. It's actually gotten worse. As we've seen over the recent years, my senior year going into my fifth year when we made the run to the first Final Four, our hours went from being two hours in the summer to starting practice, uh, two hours, sorry, two hours per week of on-court basketball time by your head coach or assistant coaching staff and starting practice October 15th. That was used to be the official start first day of practice. It's now moved up to October 1st as of officially you can actually start the um, college basketball teams that could start practice as early as what Wisconsin did as uh, yesterday, if not Thursday of this past week. So end of September. And in addition to that, colleges are now able to let their college basketball teams practice 10 hours per week during the summer. So the problem with the NCA and with colleges saying that, oh, we believe in the term student athletes, when students are supposed to be able to Offer, be offered opportunities to study abroad, to do uh, internships over the summer, to start making themselves marketable for the employment opportunities after the fact, which is not, not even, it's literally impossible to do as a student athlete. It's literally, you would have to quit your job of being a student athlete if you wanted to pursue those routes. It wouldn't even be allowed under the sense of, yes, that some of the workouts might be voluntary, for the basketball team or basketball players or football players in the summer, but the coaches will respond back and say, your playing time is also voluntary once the season comes around based off of the discretion of the coach. So you're required to be at all those different hours during the summer, the 10 hours per week, in addition to starting practice early. So your effective season length is October through the end of March. So you have a six month long in season, which is as long of the NBA for college basketball and college football is almost as long as college, as the NFL professional football, yet they say that they're not professionalized sports and yet they're making all this money off of the unpaid labor. Yeah, that is amazing. That the, I was not aware of the basketball uh, practice situation, how they had moved up the front of the schedule. That's, that's an astonishing commitment. Uh, Peter, it seems like um, 
you look, you see the balance sheets, <laughs> right? It's almost like um, a vicious cycle. Um, these these allowances are made so that teams can get better or work harder to get better so that they can become more prestigious so they can put themselves in a position to make more money which will in turn allow them to recruit better athletes or provide more resources so it can all spin forward like are we where are we headed here where where is it going to stop is there ever even a chance to pull back the reins a little bit that's a huge dilemma right now. So I, on one hand, we get this, you know, every Big Ten institution gets this huge media check every year, every year uh, for millions of dollars. And it's, it's hard to argue from an institutional standpoint. That's a bad thing. You know, so whether I think 10 to 12 million dollars a year of revenue that are generated through athletics are put in the general campus fund. So here it happens to be a thing where there, this athletic department contributes to the larger campus mission in a quite significant way. That's not the norm. So there are, you know, most, most almost all um, universities are subsidizing their athletic departments. So in some ways at Wisconsin, that dilemma is, is um, it's less toxic on campus in that the money is going, you know, in a positive net direction from athletics to the larger part of campus. But at most institutions, that's not the case. And most institutions... Um, athletics doesn't pay for itself athletics everywhere. Athletics does not even close pay for itself. So. Um, the, the, so, so um, it's, I'll, I'll say one aspect coming from a professor's perspective that I see a great di dichotomy and it's a big challenge is that on one hand we have um, advocates for, for student athletes saying that students are not getting enough and need to be paid and they're compelling arguments. On the other side we have faculty who have been you know, kind of working in the same classrooms and offices for the last 30 years and they're looking across and they're looking at you know, they're looking at these nice facilities, and they're looking at um, what, what appears to be beautiful stuff over there, <laughs> and it is. Um, and, and then to hear the argument that um, students are being taken advantage of, for a lot of people on the academic side of campus who we were talking beforehand, a lot of them don't know kind of the full story, it's a very hard argument for a lot of them to digest. So I think that as this argument goes forward, and again, I'm not making a claim here one way or the other, whether whether that is a good thing or not. That will create a significant campus divide on every campus to say that um, now it will, it, will be, um, it, will be viewed very, it will be viewed very differently, for example, in a faculty senate than it would be in, a, you know, a, um, in the, like the discussion you had with students, Sheridan. So um, it, it is, it, the more money that comes in, the more, um, the more challenge it creates. I will say that the, the actual NCAA mandated hours have actually gone down. They've gone down um, in terms of the rule. The rule has gone down. Another thing I'll say is with things like summer enrollment and with early enrollment of students, our students on average take a lot. They are required. They need to take a, a far fewer credit hours per semester. So um, we have one of the interesting new things happening in the NCA right now is that more and more students are graduating early because they're coming. You know, they're coming. They're, they're senior in their senior year of high school. Their spring semester, they're enrolling in college right after the holidays, which, again, we can argue whether that's good or not. Almost all of them are going to summer school. So there are, a lot of them are accruing credits early, and we have a lot of, like, the Russell Wilson case where he graduate and still have a year of eligibility left. So that is actually a, something that's occurring at much greater frequency now um, that, that um, didn't happen in the past. And I'll say one last thing about this, it's, again, if, if, we, if ever it were to come a case where schools could say, well, I'm going to pay my running back 100000 I'm going to pay the starting point guard uh, 250000 um, it will create a really interesting dynamic in terms of that, that transfer stuff, right? So right now, this last couple of years, we spent time making it easier for students to transfer. So now, like if I, if I say I played two years at Wisconsin and I want to transfer, it's easier for me to do so now to transfer to UCLA than it would have been five years ago. The, the rules have been loosened up. It's a more transfer-friendly environment. So if you couple that, which is a good thing, we want to allow students the, the flexibility to move, with uh, ability to be paid, it, it will create another complicating variable. I'm not saying that's the reason not to do it. I'm going to say it would change the dynamic in a lot of, in a lot of team environments. 
I got to make a point on the transfer issue because I was a transfer um, athlete from the Air Force Academy, transferred here to play basketball, um, continue my basketball career at Wisconsin, and I had to sit out a mandatory one-year redshirt year. And the biggest problem that I see is that, the, especially the media has ran all over with this argument, is that there's this, oh, this big, huge transfer epidemic in college basketball, um, specifically college basketball, but they also say college football, the revenue-generating sports one. In reality, college basketball athletes transfer, and I like to use facts. I, I don't like this non-fact-based world that we've gotten into recently. But the facts of the matter is that transfer athletes transfer at a 12 to 15% rate. Students as a whole transfer at about a 30 to 35% rate. So why would, when you transfer as a student, you don't have to sit out a year of eligibility to finish off your degree down the road. Why would you have to sit out from athletes when your coach can leave on a dime and go take another job elsewhere and recruit you to a school that you're literally recruited to play for? You're playing for the chicken or the egg argument is do you recruit do you recruit your student athlete to a school or do you recruit them to the program in the school? And I can promise you the vast majority, if not 90 plus percent of the athletes recruited commit to the, to not the school, to the coach and the, the coaching staff that they're recruited by from a football and basketball perspective. So they are literally bound to a school through the national letter of intent without having any rights of their own while the coach and the administrators and everyone else around them who put the system into place can do it without problem and even the students. The biggest thing that the NCA has argued as an institution, especially we saw this in, um, it's, the hypocrisy is hilarious, especially in this last recent case, everyone saw um, our beloved Chancellor Blank uh, testified against the, in the last case this last week. Brilliant person, I love her to death, but she made a statement that was just mind blowing when she actually made it because she's an economist by trade and she understands what a cartel is and what the legal price fixing of what economics should stand for and yet she's making this argument and then they backtracked it after the fact a week or a few days later. So it's one of those things that the NCA continues to argue and show hypocrisy, just like they did during the North Carolina academic scandal case, is that they argued that the NCA is not responsible for the quality of the athlete's education. Yet they're arguing now that by paying college athletes, their education would suffer because it would continue to create a class divide. When Going back to Professor Miller's point on the faculty who look out and look at the Cole Center and look at Camp Randall and look at all these amenities that are being offered by the athletic department, those are literally there to be put in place to keep the athletes performing at the top level and they're there because of the money that is generated by those students which is only engulfing so they're reinvesting in their own athletes to create this divide that is even being exacerbated even further than what they're trying to limit in what they're arguing in the courts. That, just one note, that, so the transfer policy has been changed. So you can not transfer. So you, that, that you, not fully, you have to get a waiver from the NCAA. Which, you, it's not a full transfer as it should be. Which, I mean, you, if you, so just, but, but that restriction has been greatly loosened. So in, in most cases, you can, you can now transfer. Right. I, I would not say in most cases. There's yeah. specific there's specific cases that you can yeah. get a waiver. It is more likely that you can get a waiver, but I would say the majority of them, they're still not going to get from a college football and college basketball from the money revenue sports. Yeah. Which, so, sorry, one other thing. The other thing that people don't realize is college football and college basketball have different transfer rules than some of the other sports. You can transfer from another yeah. sport. I have a, a teammate of mine who was dating a golfer and she transferred from one Big Ten school to the other and was able to play right away. But yeah. these money um, generating sports aren't allowed to do those such things. So that's, there, there's a current transfer working group that, so right now we've just moved from, well, the, the rule used to be you had to request, you had to request permission to transfer. It's been changed now and it's the rule now that you can notify. So I'm not gonna go to my coach and say, can I transfer, get permission to go to Iowa, for example. Now I will tell you I am transferring. So it's gone from request to, to transfer to notification to transfer. So that's one big step. It, it, will, it will, I would anticipate big change in the next year. For sure, and I gotta also make one other counterpoint to that is that coaches can actually restrict and tell you where you cannot transfer to. When I transfer from the Air Force Academy, my coach threatened me that if you transfer, I'm gonna restrict you to go to all Big Ten schools, all the other schools I was telling him I was looking at because he didn't want me to transfer. And at that point, I was already out the door. But that rule is still in the place where coaches can tell you where you can or cannot go 
based off of what, for whatever reason, they can literally limit you. We had an instance with one of my teammates, Jared Utoff, back in yeah. 2012, he transferred and had like 34 uh, teams that were on the transfer list that he could not go to. And one of them he still went to, and he had to sit out and he wasn't allowed to get a scholarship because he was on, it was on that list. So he actually got denied money because our coach told him he couldn't go to that school. That can't happen anymore though. Yes, I know, but I'm just saying those are the types yeah. of rules and regulations. Yeah. But yeah. they can still wave, They can still tell you where you can't go. Correct. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> All right, we'll we'll call it there. <laughs> um, uh, a question from the audience, uh, which is uh, along the lines of something I was thinking about asking Sheridan, since you have experience in uh, in playing for a non-scholarship athletic department. Um, what if we did this? What if we sort of eliminated college football and went toward a Division Three or even just like an Ivy League style model where there, there are no uh, athletic scholarships? Um, do you think kids would still want to come to school and play sports? Do you think uh, we would fill big stadiums of people, you know, cheering for the Badgers if, uh, if they were suddenly non-scholarship athletes competing on the field? I think that that's a very interesting or a very interesting question, and I would like to be optimistic. And again, from my experience as a Division three athlete, who um, I as well was playing and in competition and all that kind of stuff, not at the level, not at, with the visible level nationwide, but as time demands and all that kind of stuff, I had to do the same thing, and I did not get a scholarship. Um, and I am paying back loans, and dear Jesus, do I, am I paying back loans? And that's, it's not fun. But I do think that the model at which Division Three has, it does truly invest in that student athlete, because I hear some of the concerns, and not the experience that I had to say, um, you know, if, if I couldn't take a class because of a, a major, or I couldn't take a class because I was going to miss practice. Yes, that was set precedent that that was obviously, you know, important for me to be there, but it was also if their school came first, simply put, school came first, and that is some, a different experience that I had that from what I'm hearing that you had. So um, I do think that in the grand scheme of things that if college athletics did move in that direction because I've seen it happen. I do think, with or without scholarships, I do think that Division One, if you can continue to provide opportunity for people who can't pay for school to go to school and play sports and do that, I don't think taking that away, but I think with that Division Three mindset in mind to allow more of that exploration as a person and then also as a student prior to that um, athletic you know, Pruess coming and being at the forefront of what is being done. So, Zach, you can you can provide some insight on this question here because I don't know if this happened when you were on the team, but I know it happened soon after. Why don't teams strike? Why haven't we seen a case where um, a team has said we're we're, we're not going to play today? I think the basketball team thought about doing that. Uh, was it when you were here? Or was it the year after? Yeah, that's also another great point. Um, so, the. Really, in short, on why a strike or a boycott or whatever you want to call it doesn't take place is that the ramifications are too strong against and weighted towards the coaches and their positive nature and the negative nature of what the ramifications would be for the athlete themselves. So usually the time that the athlete realizes the manipulation or exploitation or whatever you want to call it from college football or college basketball and they realize that that actually is the relevant case. And it took me to get someone who was a highly engaged individual like Nigel Hayes to understand it as a freshman, which was unheard of. But usually by the time that athletes usually have the persona and the character and the ability to make a statement by doing such a thing, it's too late in their careers and they have too much on the line by being threatened of not playing or getting suspended. And my case, um, one of the things that happened to me specifically was when I chose to pursue my route of being an MBA student my senior year, um, I chose to, our MBA classes started two weeks prior to when the actual school year started. We had a trip to Canada for a foreign experience that you get to take every four to five years as a college basketball player. And I had, to, I had to make a decision. I told Coach Ryan, I'm like, hey, I have to go to my MBA classes. I won't be able to join the team during this trip. 
And he said, okay, good luck. And I was like, that's it. There's no like talk or dialogue about this. He's like, nope, you're good. And so I actually missed the first three games of the trip. I came back for the weekend on one of the, the last two games and I got, actually got suspended for missing those three games for going to class. So the running joke the rest of the year was on our team was if you want to get, if you don't want to play, go to class and you're going to get suspended for going to class. So whenever there was a joke on saying, I don't feel like going to class today, they're like, don't go because you're going to get suspended by Coach Ryan. Um, so going back to your question on if anyone tried to strike or boycott, the ramifications are just way too great for what the consequences would be. Um, I do, we're just about out of time here, but I, I want to leave. Um, I want to read this comment from, from one of you and then give um, everybody on the panel here a chance to respond to it. Um, we love to support UW athletes, but I think Zach has convinced me that the only thing to do is to give up our season tickets because they're so completely abused by having to bring more and more money to the university. Um, any response to that? I mean, I'll Zach, you're the guy there. <laughs> I guess I'm a man of few words, as you guys can all tell. Um, to be totally honest, I have my dad was a Rose Bowl quarterback for the Iowa Hawkeyes back in 1981-82 season. I had three brothers who played Division One um, sports, just like myself. I was able to be a captain on the Final Four team, and I have a really, really hard time. I'm, I go to all of my younger brothers' games as a starting point guard at Iowa on the basketball team. Um, and support of him as a person because I know what the institution of college athletics can do for someone who's the face of a team like he is. Um, and I go to all of his games home and away, but outside of that, I have a really, really hard time to watch any other sports, college sports on TV or football or basketball for numerous reasons, but none other than the exact reasons that I've talked about today. And I, I really like Sheridan's point on ideally in my my ideal world, I would love to just blow up the entire system and literally turn back to an Ivy League model. <laughs> no, to turn back to an Ivy League model, I think it's outrageous that we have a system in place today, just like we have in our, in our country that we fund K through 12 education with property taxes, which is unheard of throughout the entire um, developed world today, but also in this sense that we professionalize our college athletics to a point that literally we have like I mentioned, Chancellor Blank say statements under oath that are literally just there to try to continue on with the sheer hypocrisy of what the system should stand for and putting that system into place just because they're trying to um, make money for their own school. And I think Sonny Vaccaro made the statement brilliantly when he was um, questioning Bryce Jordan, who was a former president, or president emeritus of Penn State University. He said, why should we take your money from Nike and continue to market your guys or have us be your marketeers of the students and the coaches and um, all the other people that would be wearing the Nike gear? And he said, I can't force you, sir, but you will refuse to take it or you refuse to not accept it. And you will have no option but to accept it because it's free money that you will take. And as long as you guys can continue to fill the coffers of money it, there's no going back and like I said I really would love if we could go back to Ivy League model where we would have literally funded based off of your um, ed, uh, background of either education or your socioeconomic background because that's what college is supposed to be about. It's supposed to be about higher education and getting a degree and it's sad to know that someone like myself or someone like uh, Quentin who's in the audience who took full advantage of the um, educational opportunities but we're few and far between when it comes to that. Uh, Peter Sheridan, did one of you have a response? Yeah, I, I would agree that with the, the infusion of money that has just been kind of, if you look at the chart of the budgets of different departments over the last 10 years, it's just a straight line up and that can't continue in a healthy manner. They, they're not going to just keep, keep going up in a healthy manner. So I think that the, uh, a, a blended holistic model is very attractive. I, I just want to kind of reiterate though that I think that the good Again, when we talk about corruption in college sport generally, I think that there is so, so much good in it. I think that if any one of you went and spent a lot of time with any one of our teams, you would largely see so much good. You would see people doing what they love. You would see people going, going to class, getting degrees, being great students, traveling the world. You know, I, as, as a student, I had never been on an airplane before I went to college. I traveled the world. I played on a basketball team in Italy. I played on a summer team in South America. 
I saw the world. I traveled all over. I, went to, I wouldn't have gone to college. I went to college because I knew how to play basketball. So I just think we cannot, there, there are problems. There are things that need to be fixed. We should fix it. We will fix it. I think there will be big change in the next couple of years. But sometimes if, uh, I think we can lose the big picture, which is if, again, the, the majority is very, very good at what's going on in college sport. I think that in the, in the big money sports, cor corruption is, is significant and it needs to change. Um, I think there's, there's a lot of good. Thank you. Please join me in thanking our panel. That, that was excellent. Thank you for listening to Live from Cap Time's Idea Fest. You can subscribe to this show on iTunes or anywhere else you find podcasts. If you like it, please give us a rating or a review. We'd appreciate it. We're also releasing audio from the fest on some of our other podcasts here at the Cap Times. Shows like The Corner Table, The Madsplainers, and Cap Times Talks. Be sure to give those a listen. I'm Eric Lawrenson, and thanks again for tuning in. 